Today's text is Revelation 10. That's on page 1,923 in your pew Bibles. We will first repeat the reminder from Revelation 1 regarding the source of these words and the importance of listening to them. Revelation will then follow. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, robed in a cloud, the rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs like fiery pillars. He held a little scroll which lay open in his hand, placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said. Do not write it down. Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all things in them, and the earth and all things in it, and the sea and all things in it, and said, There will be no more delay. In the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once again. Go. Take the scroll that lies in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I asked him for the little scroll. And he said, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll and I ate it. In my mouth it did taste as sweet as honey. But after I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, I must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. Thank you for that reading once again, and uh, we'll actually be looking at chapters 10 and 11 uh, this morning. You may want to keep your Bibles open. I'll try and have as much on the screen as, <clears throat> as possible for you, um, but you may even want to revisit uh, these texts this afternoon or, or sometime today. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, uh, Michael Linville tells the story of a Thanksgiving day he, that he was too sick to preach in his little rural church in Minnesota. It was short notice, and so the only minister they could find to fill the pulpit 
was the Reverend Lex Ardent, a retired clergyman from the Apostolic Church of the Divine Christ in God, which, as Linville describes it, broke off from a splinter group of a sect whose name includes all the same words, just arranged in a different sequence. Linville was a little hesitant to have Lex come and preach in his church because it was pretty well known that Lex only had one sermon to his name. Lex preached about the rapture, the doctrine that all true believers will one day be plucked live and whole from wherever they happen to be and whisked into the kingdom of God. And Lex was a master at it. He would describe a dozen or so settings in which people were gathered together when suddenly, without warning, someone would disappear. For instance, people would be waiting in line at the supermarket, at the pick and save, when whammo, the checkout girl, disappears. And the theme that Lex hit over and over, of course, was when the rapture comes, you don't want to be left behind. How Lex could get away with preaching only one sermon um, was to tailor that sermon to fit every occasion. For instance, if he were preaching on Christmas, he would end the sermon by saying, it was to save us from being left behind that Jesus Christ was born. Or if it was Easter, he would say, it was to save us from being left behind that God raised Jesus from the dead. And sure enough, Lex had a Thanksgiving version too. Thank God, thank God, in the season of Thanksgiving, thank God that it's not too late for anyone in this room. But on this particular Thanksgiving day, something strange happened. Linville says, our choir recesses out of the church during the closing hymn. They leave the choir loft, which is up front on the left, and they process across the chancel behind the communion table and out the right rear door and head straight for the coffee pot. This is a direct but narrow path, he says, with one hazard, a wooden heating grate in the floor directly behind the big oak communion table that measures about two and a half feet square. Emma Bowers, a soprano, is new to the choir. She's a small woman who gives herself another three inches of height by wearing spiked heels. That day, as she passed over the heating grate, her right heel went into one of the little square holes and it lodged there, tight. The recessing choir, hymn books in front of their faces, open to page 233. Well, they slowed as Emma tugged to get her foot free. But I guess the shoes were tight and old because her shoes stayed on her foot and her heel did not break off. And on the third mighty pull, Emma lifted the entire grate right out of the duct and moved on, trooper that she is, walking as if she'd been shot in the leg, but trying to keep going so that no one would notice. Right behind her was Elsie Johnson, who, to put it kindly, does not have a keen awareness of her immediate environment. She can see all right, she just never seems to notice things. Lex looked over just in time to see Elsie step where the heating grate wasn't. She gave a little whoop 
and just disappeared behind the communion table. Lex dropped his jaw. His eyes went wide. The hymn book in his hands fell. And then he shut his eyes tight. The rapture. Still in the grip of his sermonic euphoria, he saw before his very eyes the scene that he had been putting into words for the last 45 years. Elsie had been taken, and he was left behind. This state of flabbergasted misapprehension lasted for perhaps four seconds, and it had to be the longest four seconds of Lex's life. Then his look shifted from horror to befuddlement to immense relief as he saw the choir lifting Elsie out of the heating duct. He closed his eyes and mouthed what was surely his most earnest Thanksgiving prayer ever, thankful that the apocalypse was delayed. That's one of my favorite stories about the rapture. It's one I can smile over because Reformed theology presents a little different picture of the rapture and the end times. And it's a picture that does not include the church being whisked out of the world before trial and tribulation hit. But it's a picture of a church that remains here in the midst of the trial and the tribulation all the way until the end. But while we Reformed Christians, I think, can smile at that story, I don't think we can smirk. Because even while our theology views the end times differently, in practice, in practice, we often end up in the very same place as our rapture-believing sisters and brothers in the church. And that's a place where the church tries to beam itself out of the world whenever the going gets tough. Whenever the going gets tough, we want the church to escape the world. And friends, that's exactly the attitude which Revelation 10 and 11 is trying to correct. Let's... Walk through this text, if you would, with me this morning, and I'll try and show you exactly what I mean. If we're going to understand these two chapters of Scripture, first we have to look at chapter 9, verse 20. This verse follows a long string of judgments upon the world. We've, we've heard about these, right? Seven seals worth of judgments. And then in that seventh seal, there were seven more trumpets worth of judgments. And then we read 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. Okay? The rest of mankind after these judgments still did not repent. The question that the text wants us to ask here is why? Why not? Why did they not repent? Even after experiencing all of those judgments, after experiencing the fact that the Creator God okay, cannot and will not be mocked, why did they still refuse to repent? Well, hang on to that question, all right? And flip over to chapter 11, verse 13. There we read, At that very hour there was a severe earthquake. <clears throat> All right, and a tenth of the city collapsed, so more judgment. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. 
But then we read this. And the survivors, and the Greek here says the rest, the rest were terrified and they gave glory to God. They gave glory to the God of heaven. Right? They feared God and they gave him glory. So here's what we need to see. All right, in chapter 9, verse 20, as a result of all the judgments, the rest refused to repent. But in chapter 11, verse 13, when more judgments hit, here the rest do repent. See the difference? They don't repent, then they do repent. And what we have to ask is what accounts for that change of heart? What accounts for that change of heart? Let's look at chapter 10. Okay, in chapter 10, verse 1, we meet another angel, a huge, mighty angel. This is not the kind of angel you put at the top of your Christmas tree, all right? This is a, an angel who wears uh, the clouds for a t-shirt. This is an angel who, whose face is lost in the sun. His legs are like fire. They're planted on the land. They're planted on the sea. His voice is like a lion, all right? The letter to the Hebrews says that some of us have entertained angels unaware. This is not one of those angels. Okay? If you entertain this angel, you would know. If we were in John's place, sitting on that island of Patmos, all right, this angel must have looked like the cavalry. This angel must have looked like rescue has finally come. Finally, God has noticed my state and is taking some action on my behalf. And that's what it seems like is happening, right? Because this angel shouts. And he shouts seven thunders. And this would fit with what we've studied so far in Revelation, right? I mean, we've heard seven seals worth of judgments, seven angels with seven trumpets full of judgments, and here we find another seven thunders worth of judgments. <clears throat> seven thunders designed finally to wipe out all of the enemies of God and his people. Seven thunders finally to rescue John and his church from the suffering that they're experiencing at the hands of Rome. But... Then a voice speaks. Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. In other words, seal up the seven thunders of more judgment. We're not going to have more judgment. Why? Because the judgments are not working. The judgments are not doing what they're intended to do. Now, scroll down to verse 7. In the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet. So note here where we are, all right? The seventh trumpet has not yet sounded. In fact, where we are is we are between, somewhere between the sixth, sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. In fact, when the seventh trumpet actually sounds, that will come in chapter 11, verse 15. And the seventh trumpet will actually bring about the end. Okay? Look there for a moment. 15, verse 15 of chapter 11. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And some of you, uh, for some of you, those words may bring to mind the hallelujah chorus and you want to sing along. See, we've sung those words, but did we ever really hear them? Do we know where they came from? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. In other words, our prayer has been answered, right? Your kingdom come, Lord, here on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The kingdom of our God has come down here to the earth. This is the end, right? Further proof, verse 16 of that same chapter, the, 12 el- the 24 elders say, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. And it stops there. Every time we've heard that phrase up till now in the book of Revelation, it's been the God who is and who was and what? And who is to come. But here it just says the God who is and who was. Why? It's because the God who is to come has come. It's no more. We don't have to read he is to come because he has come. With the seventh trumpet, God comes and he brings the kingdom with him. Now, go back to 10 verse 7. I know we're jumping around here. Back to 10 7. The seventh trumpet has not yet sounded. We're waiting for that to happen. So these are still the days before the final trumpet. Before the end. And in these days, 10.7 says this, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants the prophets. What's the mystery of God? Well, the mystery of God here is the same mystery of God that Paul writes about in his letter to the Ephesians and the Colossians and elsewhere. It's the mystery of how God will bring the Gentiles into the kingdom of God along with Israel. It's the mystery of how God will save the nations through the gospel of Jesus Christ. How will he do that? He will save them through his chosen and elect people. He will save them through the ongoing witness of his church. In other words, the mystery of God is how we get from chapter 9, verse 20, where the rest did not repent. It's how we get from there to eleven thirteen, where the rest did repent. How we get from one place to the other is the witness, the ongoing suffering witness of the church is added to the judgments of God. And this is enough to bring the nations to repent. This is before the end. Now, before we go on here, we've got to pause and make sure that we've got this, that we understand this. This little point right here, and it's really not so little. Because all of the judgments that are flying around in the book of Revelation would almost lead us to believe that our God sort of hates this world. That he's just a a God of wrath, and he's out there looking for a target upon which to unleash all that wrath. But that's not the truth. 
And what we see here in Revelation 10 is the same message about our God that we find everywhere else in the Bible. This is the very same God who came to Abraham back in Genesis and said to him, Abraham, it's through you that I am going to bless all of the nations of the world. This is the very same God of Jesus who said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Right? This is the very same God of John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. God loves the world. His intent is to save the peoples, the languages, the nations, the kings. That's his intent. And so I'm going to say this once, but it's something we need to hear. Friends, if you use the book of Revelation to take out your anger on unbelievers, or to divide the world into this us-versus-them scenario, or even to dismiss any part of the world as sort of expendable in God's eyes, you are out of sync. You are out of sync with the Word of God, and you are out of sync with the heart of God. And that's something we have to understand. God is out to save all the nations of the world. And the rest of our text affirms that, okay? The mighty angel seals up the seven thunders, and instead he gives John a little scroll. And it's a scroll that John is supposed to eat. Now, a little sidebar here again, because here's another place where commentators tend to differ. Some folks see this little scroll that's in the angel's hand as being the very same scroll that Jesus is given in chapter 5 and where Jesus begins to open. I think this is a different scroll, all right? A couple of reasons why. For one, it's called a little scroll, which I think distinguishes it from the other scroll in Jesus' hand. Furthermore, and perhaps even more telling, is that this scroll is is in the hands of the angel. It's not in Jesus' hands. And even more, it's open. And we know from what we've read so far that the scroll that Jesus is opening is not yet fully open. He's begun to open the seventh seal, but what we find were seven more trumpets. So that scroll is not yet fully open. In fact, I don't think it will be open until the end of chapter 11. But there is a connection between these two scrolls. Before the scroll in the hand of Jesus can be fully opened, the little scrolls in the hand of the angel must be taken by John and the church and eaten. It must be consumed and assimilated. So the angel gives John this little scroll to eat. And he tells him, it's going to taste sweet in your mouth, but it's going to turn sour in your stomach. Makes it sound a little bit like this scroll comes from Taco Bell, but I don't think it is. The scroll is bittersweet. And after John eats it, he's told that he must prophesy, verse 11, about, I think the better translation here is he must prophesy to many people's nations, languages, and kings. So what's the little scroll? Well, it's the mystery of God 
now revealed, now opened, of how God will save the nations of the world. It's a scroll that must be eaten and assimilated by John and his church so that they understand their role in this mystery of how God will save the nations. And their role will be one that is sweet, but it's a role that will also be bitter. It's that role of the church that chapter 11, 11 excuse me, expands on. Let's look there a moment. Now, chapter 11 can be a little difficult to understand, so what I'm going to try to do is give us just enough images here um, to help us understand, hopefully without too many images, that we get overwhelmed. Now, it may help to see that this chapter is sort of a, a parable following chapter 10, right? It's the playing out of the eating of the bittersweet scroll. So we see what that eating brings about. Begin with verse 1. Go and measure the temple of God and the altar. Now, what's this measuring all about? Right? Measuring is kind of strange to us. Well, it's a literary device here that's communicating God's care and his protection for his church. Picture the little marks on your door frame at home if you've got kids, and you mark every little growth spurt of those children, right? And every quarter inch is very, very precious to you. Well, the same here is true of God. God pays the same doting attention to that part of the temple where his people worship he cares about every little quarter inch the worshiping church what we're being told here is protected see the holy or the holy city is being trampled by the nations but the inner temple the place where the church worships will be protected in other words the nations cannot stop the worship the true worship of god because it's precious to him and it's this worshiping community that does not stop worshiping the true church. It's this worshiping community that bears witness to God and to his Christ. The nations cannot stop the witness of the church because they've been measured by God. Verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses. Now, who are these two witnesses? There's been all sorts of, uh, you know, all sorts of, um, I can't even think of the word, but people are, are, you know, all sorts of stories about who these two witnesses are. If you look at the story, though, they remind us very much of Elijah and Moses, right? They can call down fire from heaven. They can stop the heavens from raining. They can turn water to blood. What did Moses and Elijah have in common? Well, both of them were called to confront the worlds of pagan idolatry, okay? Egypt, right? The Baal worshipers in Elijah's day, they were called to confront the worlds of pagan idolatry. Now, we're told that these two witnesses are the two lampstands. Recall from chapter 1, we read about seven lampstands and we're told that those are the seven churches of Jesus Christ, Right? The two lampstands here are symbols for the church of Jesus Christ. Well, why two and not seven? Why don't we have seven again? Well, John is telling us something just a little different about the church here, and that is about their witness. For a witness or for a testimony, 
To be true and judged true in court, you needed two witnesses. You needed two witnesses. What we are told here is that these two witnesses stand for the church who give true testimony to our God and to his Christ. Their testimony is legal, their testimony is right, and it's true. So the church will witness, and their witness will be true. Now, what about this power that God gives to the two witnesses? Well, this is a very specific kind of power, and again, often people are misled when we read that word power. This is the power of the Lamb. This is upside-down power, okay? This is the power that Jesus showed in his willingness to lay down his life for his sheep. So, God doesn't give his church the power of the sword, but he does, as we heard last week, give church the church power. He gives it the power of prayer. And this week here we see he gives it the power of the truth. The power of true witness to the creator God and to his Christ. And that power actually has the power to convert the nations and therefore the power to bring in the kingdom of God. That's power. Now notice too that the witnesses are clothed in sackcloth. And this is important as well. Sackcloth was the clothing of repentance. The witnesses here call the world to repentance. And then we get to the bitterness. Okay, 11 verse 7. The beast will overpower and kill them. The beast will overpower them, the witnesses or the church, and kill them. What I want you to see here is that this verse testifies to the power of the beast. Okay, the beast does have power. In fact, the beast does overcome at certain places and certain times. The beast actually does kill, right? The persecuted church knows that. However, what we usually don't see here is that this verse also testifies to the power of the church. The power of the church, remember, is the power of Christ. And the power of Christ is released in death that comes as a result of faithful witness. In other words, the victory of the beast actually turns out to be the victory of the church. The victory of Christ. The beast kills, but when he does, the church is victorious. Because just like Jesus died and rose and ascended, so here the church not only dies, but you see in verse 11 it rises, and then in verse 12 it ascends up to heaven to be with God. And this, friends, is the power of witness. The church goes on speaking the truth about God. It will not back down. It does not back down. It will not compromise. And it doesn't compromise because it does not fear death. And it doesn't fear death because it knows resurrection. The church knows, therefore, that its witness will accomplish God's purposes. Even if we are put to death, 
It will accomplish God's purposes. The nations will repent. And that's what we find in chapter 11, verse 13. The result of that suffering witness of the church. We read it before. There was a severe earthquake. The tenth of the city collapsed and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The judgment. And that sounds like really bad news, doesn't it? A tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 were lost. But again, we have to remember the Old Testament. Because what we have here is actually a mirror image of the kinds of results that the Old Testament prophets saw from their work, from their prophecy. Just think of Elijah a moment, right? Elijah prophesied to his people over and over and over again. And what happened? He got depressed and God comes to him and says, Elijah, look, I've reserved 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. There's a small remnant. There's a small minority of people who have not compromised, right? The rest were lost. But there's a small minority who have been saved. What we find here in this part of Revelation is, is that as a result of the witness of the church, it's not 7,000 who are spared, but it's the majority who are spared. It's not one-tenth that are lost, but it's, it's nine-tenths that are saved. You see, as a result of the church, the nations do repent. They do come to see the truth that God is the true God. Yes, there is a minority that are lost, but the majority are saved. The words of 11.13, the rest, those who survived, were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The rest were saved. How do we account for so many repenting and being saved, it's the witness of the church. That's the sweetness, friends. It's through the suffering witness of the church that God will save the nations. What's the bitterness? It's through the suffering witness of the church that God will save the nations. Through the suffering witness of the church that God will save the nations. Just as it was through the suffering of Jesus Christ that God brought life to the church, it's through the suffering of the church that he brings life to the world. The story that's told here in Revelation 10 and 11, friends, is how judgments alone do not bring about the repentance of the nations. The repentance that God ultimately desires. The judgments are mute. There needs to be something added to those judgments. And what needs to be added is the suffering witness of the church. And that will bring about the desire of God. Friends, Revelation presents to us a Jesus who is the true witness. He is true in the sense that he would not back down from presenting us a picture of his God and his Father that was true and precise. There was no compromise in it whatsoever. 
Think of, think of Luke chapter 15, right? The sinners and the tax collectors are gathering around Jesus, eager to hear what he has to say. And the Pharisees come up scorning the whole picture. And they say, Jesus, he welcomes and he eats with sinners. And what does Jesus do? Does he back away? Does he say, oh no, God the Father, he loves you Pharisees just as much. He loves you people who don't swear and and who come to church every Sunday and wear just the right clothes. No. Jesus tells a little story about a hundred sheep. Ninety-nine were in the fold, but one had wandered away. And what did the shepherd do? He went after that one. And Jesus said, this is the heart of the Father. He loves everyone. And he would not back down from that witness. And as a result of that, what did they do? They killed him. What about us? Is our witness true? Think about this scenario for a moment. This is maybe more for fathers than mothers. I apologize. But let's just say you've got a child, maybe they're in junior high sports or high school sports, <clears throat> boy or girl, maybe it's your daughter, and, and she had a great game on Friday night, but you read the newspaper the next day or, or the headlines, and it was, all about, um, it was all about the girl who scored 30 points, and what a, what a wonderful game she had, but you know the truth. All those points came off of layups from the passes and the steals that your daughter threw to her. Your daughter had 30 assists that game. She was responsible for the entire win. Not a word. What do you do when you read that headline? You get all upset and you want to correct it and you tell everybody you know, no, it was really my daughter who had the great game. You see, there are times when we know that we have to be true witnesses. We have to stand up for the truth. What about when it's God our Father and it's His truth Do we stand up with that same passion and testify to the truth? No matter what it means for us. You see, friends, the church is called to bear witness to the true God without backing down. The truth of our witness must be more important to us than the protection of our bodies. The truth of our witness must be more important to us than the protection of our reputations got to be more important to us than anything. Let's just revisit Pastor Lex a moment, okay? Because, friends, the truth is that all of us want to escape. All of us want to avoid or circumvent the bitterness, the suffering. We're no different from our rapture-believing brothers and sisters. We're just not. But there's irony in that story. You see, Pastor Lex was here, right? He wasn't avoiding the fray somewhere. He was right here. He was bold and he was preaching a message of repentance. No matter how silly he looked. What about us? What do we do when the hard times come? What do we do when the suffering gets uncomfortably near? What do we do when we're tempted to compromise our witness? Do you conquer 
by the blood of the Lamb. You conquer by the blood of the Lamb. You participate in that blood. Does all witness lead to martyrdom? Right? That's a question we all ask. Does all witness lead to martyrdom? Well, perhaps not for each of us individually. But what we have to see is that, yes, ultimately, all witness does lead to martyrdom. You see, the beast will not tolerate dissent from his self-deification. You either worship him or you don't. You either get in line or you lose your life. And God, on the other side, will not tolerate compromise to the lies of the beast. And so true witness against the claims of the beast will ultimately promote a conflict that will become a struggle to the death. Our faithful testimony, my faithful testimony, may not lead to my martyrdom, but somewhere down the road it will lead to the martyrdom of other Christians. Faithful witness will, in the end, lead to death. Will every Christian be martyred? No. But all of us must be prepared to die. And friends, we are. That's the irony. We are. Remember your baptism. We died with Jesus Christ. And we will be raised with Jesus Christ to new life forever ever and that's what gives us the courage to stand upon the truth and to be a true witness to our god no matter the cost the bitterness but remember the sweetness that it leads to let's bow together in prayer lord our god Big stuff again here. <clears throat> and yet, it seems to all get narrowed down to those words that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Those words are words of comfort. They're words of sweetness. But they're also words that remind us that the church lives and continues the suffering of Jesus Christ, the giving up of his life so that more and more might find life in him. Lord, help us to accept the bitterness along with the sweetness. May we be your faithful church, not just here on Sundays, but every day of the week in every part of our lives. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.